We've introduced tough new measures today to help us stop the boats. The new illegal migration bill means that if you come here illegally, you will not be able to stay. The British people deserve to know which party is serious about stopping the invasion on our southern coast and which party is not. You're in France. I, I don't know how many times I'm going to have to say this. You're in France. You're not in war-torn Syria. You're not in Ukraine. You're not being bombed. You're in France, mm. okay? Um, you're not desperate at that point. You really are not. The fact that you happen to know someone who lives in Leeds, so you want to go to England, well, tough. We cannot sustain a population rising as rapidly as this. It simply doesn't work. I don't even believe there's now an economic benefit to this either. As that short selection of clips shows, Britain has been bombarded with scare stories about immigration this year. That's nothing new, of course, but it does seem to be taking on a new level of viciousness. We can now hardly go a day without hearing of invasions on our southern border of queue jumpers taking us for a ride or of lefty lawyers conspiring to help people stay in Britain against the will of the people. It's all quite grotesque and it's incredibly dehumanising. But Braverman and Sunak appear to think that raising the stakes on this issue is their best hope of retaining seats at the next general election. So we shouldn't expect this issue, this topic, to go away. And this new series of Crash Course is in part aimed at debunking the lies of the likes of Rishi Sunak and Suella Braverman. However, it won't be limited to that. Because aside from the predictable hate-mongering from Tory politicians and right-wing pundits, there are genuinely new and interesting developments and challenges when it comes to migration to Britain. Small boat crossings certainly aren't an invasion or a threat to social order, but they are a real and new phenomenon. Why have they increased in recent years? What happens when people arrive here? And how could we prevent people risking their lives at the hands of people smugglers? Separate from small boat crossings, there have also been incredibly interesting developments on regular migration. Most obviously, despite the anti-migrant rhetoric of our government, net migration is an all-time high. How did that happen? And how, in the wake of an anti-migrant vote to leave the EU, did we end up with higher levels of immigration than ever? And as well as looking at these current trends in migration, I also want to look at alternatives. And this is probably the area where, even doing after the initial research for this series, I remain most genuinely unsure. To put my cards on the table, I'm sympathetic to the open borders argument, especially on a moral level. The moral case is incredibly strong. But I remain unsure as to how it would practically work, and I don't like advocating for things until I've properly thought through their consequences. So, in this series, I'll be speaking to experts who can explain the present reality of migration, its potential futures, and what kind of alternatives we might want to build. Should we advocate for safe routes? What would they look like? Should we advocate for open borders? What do we want? I'm hoping by the end of this series to become at least somewhat of an expert, and I hope you will too. You're listening to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker. To support the show, please sign up at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. That will get you access to all full episodes on this series on migration, as well as everything from my first season on the rental crisis and my mini series on whether COVID changed the world and other one off 
episodes. We've done them on the crisis in Sudan and climate change in China so far. To get this series going, I wanted to start with the one migration story that has dominated the news this year. That's asylum seekers crossing the channel on small boats and the asylum backlogs that have seen arrivals put up for long periods of time in hotels around the country. And to get a handle on all this, I could think of no better guest than Lou Calvi. Lou is an asylum expert who I've often had on my Navara show and who you might have seen regularly taking on right wing pundits on Britain's mainstream media over the summer, including Julia Hartley Brewer, who you heard in the intro there. It was a real privilege to be able to have a proper in-depth chat with Lou. I learned an awful lot from this conversation and I hope you will too. Uh, Luke Alvey, thank you so much for joining me on Crash Course. Thank you, Michael. And um, I've had you a number of times on my show on Navarra Media, often on Sky News or, or Talk TV, and you're always introduced as Luke Alvey, immigration and asylum specialist. Um, and I mean, you, you definitely speak like you're a specialist on the topic. It's quite an ambiguous title, though, isn't it? I mean, could you? We've got a bit more time on this sh- on this show in this conversation. Could you explain a bit more what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I uh, don't, whenever I do media work, I don't typically attach myself with a particular charity, mainly because I think that gives me a bit more freedom to uh, comment on the experiences that I witness. Uh, Truthfully, it means that no one has to accept responsibility for me. Um, You know, I, I speak about issues that are really contentious and people feel very strongly and passionately on either side of the debate so uh, sometimes it's better to um, just have that independent voice but basically what I do in my days is uh, I work across the whole of the UK refugee and asylum sector my background is really in casework Um, I started with the Citizens Advice Bureau many many years ago uh, as a volunteer uh, just helping people um, struggling with poverty and um, And then I moved into working with refugees and asylum seekers. And now I work with charities across the UK, helping them trying to wrestle solutions uh, for individual humans that are going through one of the most violent and brutal um, systems and structures in in our country. You know, that the state deliberately constructs and drives harm and risk at asylum seekers and we've got a whole army of volunteers now in, in in hotels in barges in barracks trying to help people with that and so what I do is uh, I help those charities sort of at a structural senior level to try and create the right approaches uh, to minimizing risk minimizing harm in those sort of hotel environments and um, yeah it's 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 amazing. It means I get to work with a whole range of wonderful charities and I get to see humans sort of at every stage in that UK refugee and asylum process and the vulnerable migrant communities that aren't going through the asylum system that are maybe living in exploitation or, or poverty and not engaging uh, with the state, which is a significant part of our work as well. So it's fairly practical, I suppose, isn't it? You're, you're often working on the, the side of supporting practically, well, either refugees or charities that support refugees. Absolutely, yeah. So it's, it's very practical. I'm not a policy person. Uh, God help me. Uh, I'm not a, you know, a natural campaigner. I very much evolved into this work. And when I do media work, it's, it, I'm, I'm often driven to do it because 
of of the people that I see every day, that that human lived experience. It, you know, we, we need that truth, I think, in some of the media work. Um, we need to be pushing for change. So it's not something I feel incredibly comfortable with. It's it's not natural for me. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a as I said, a, you know, my DNA is casework. It's working with people to try and find solutions to, to the problems that they're experiencing in their lives. Um, I think my frustration is that there are there are so many better ways that we could be supporting people that that the state is is spending a lot of taxpayers money inflicting a lot of harm on people and i i think i hope that what i bring to the table is 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 some quite practical lens on some of that comms and campaigning work um from 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 my day job essentially yeah, we do speak very effectively on it whenever you're you're on the media. You're often in more hostile spaces than my show on Navarra Media. You're often up against Julia Hartley Brewer and the likes of her. Um, it's, it's it's a delight. <laughs> let's talk about the situation from the last couple of years, I suppose, because it is small boats which have become the big issue. Um, now, you know, we might say, is this genuinely the big issue for asylum in this country? Or is this something which has been sort of grabbed on and, and, and made a big deal by politicians? I think you know, there are two arguments there. But I suppose what is undeniable is that small boat crossings have dramatically increased. So sort of as yes. recently as 2018, there were barely any. Um, last year, there were over 40,000. I think it looks like this year is going to be fairly similar to, to last year in total. Yeah. Um, so, so what has happened whereby no one or barely anyone, used to cross the channel to try and claim asylum in the UK, and now thousands do? I think there's two issues that have um, conspired here to create the crisis in safe routes that we're seeing reflected in the the rise in in small boat crossings. Uh, I try and separate it out in my head. I think the first issue is there has been a rise overall over the last sort of 20 years and the numbers of people claiming asylum in the UK. That's one issue. I, I think it was higher around 22 years ago, something like that. You know, it was about, I think it was about 10,000 higher than it is this year or last year. But certainly over the last 18 to 20 years, it's been steadily growing year on year, the number of overall asylum applicants. So I think that's one issue that, that we need to understand systemically and why that's happening and what's driving that increase that growth in asylum overall asylum applications from from whatever travel from whatever means and then the second issue as you've identified uh, since 2018 there's been a steady rise in the number of people uh, gaining access to the UK via small boat routes so I think if we, if we start from that one and, and the rise in small boats um, I think that to a certain extent um, the, the, the growth in small boats has correlated with a, a decrease in alternative means of travel to the UK. We used to see people coming on trains and ferries predominantly from, from northern France. You probably remember the Grace tragedy in Kent where there were people found in the, in the back of the um, HGV Um so those were used to be the, the former means of travel uh, in order to get to the UK to claim asylum. And what happened was two things. The government, the British government, mi- pretty much militarised those borders um, 
around the ferry ports in northern France and the, and the train terminuses in northern France. We saw them cooperating with the French to, to really increase border security around that. So it made those means of travel a lot harder for people to smuggle themselves onto. At the same time, around that time, we also saw those means of travel diminish with uh, the COVID pandemic. Simply, there wasn't as much uh, freight, cargo, uh, people crossing on those ferries and on, on those trains. And so what 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 seemed to happen is um, initially there was a level of semi-organisation around small boat crossings. So we saw a movement of um, organised groups spotting almost a gap in the market and and starting those small boat crossings um, and, and, and selling passage on that way. And we also saw people um, independently getting dinghies. We saw uh, people building rafts uh, to take themselves on, on, on small boat crossings. So a combination of sort of self-engineered, self-organised crossing and some um, organised people smuggling organ operations starting from some of the shores in northern France. So I think those factors were, you know, as I said, the, the reinforcement of those those more traditional means of travel, the, the ports. COVID certainly had an impact in, uh, in the changing patterns of travel. Um, there's speculation that um, Brexit had a role there, Um I'm not convinced about that. I, th- I think it was, but for me, I think it was more practical. I think it was more that 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 people were struggling to get on the ferries and the trains, so they moved on to in more informal routes. Uh, and I think that's why you've seen a massive uh, rise in small boat routes and a decrease in other forms of irregular travel. Yeah. So I, I suppose, as you say, sort of two issues. Maybe sort of a a rise in asylum more generally separate from routes and then people sort of switching what means of travel they're coming by i suppose because the overall numbers have increased like by quite a considerable degree to be honest Mm. and there was say there was a migrant crisis in 2015 when there were a lot more people moving in general it seems to me that potentially the sequence of events was that when people used to go to calais um they would wait for a long time to try and get on the back of a lorry or you know to to sort of slip through one by one or in very small groups and it was actually quite difficult and took a long time mm-hmm. and what people realized in say 2018 was that while you know the boat route is to some degree quite dangerous it is actually also more effective than anything they were doing before so it, it, it has actually become easier to get to the UK than it was before because this route has opened up which f- for whatever reason um, no one had really considered a realistic option before. So it do, I suppose what I'm saying, it doesn't just seem like it's different means of travel displaced. It seems like the overall ease of getting to the UK is now easier because this route has has been opened up. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that's that's certainly yeah credible. Um, I um, I think the conditions in Calais as well are pretty chronic. Um, and it, you know the people that are waiting some prolonged stays in Calais are, are finding that increasingly intolerable. 
and I think that's that's driving a more urgency, a more immediacy, and a you know a, a want to sort of get get to the UK and 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 bless them. I think people that I speak to still think that they're going to have quite a swift process, and then they'll be able to get on with their lives. What you hear predominantly from people that are undertaking that journey is just n- no comprehension or understanding of just how chronic the conditions are in the UK asylum system and and how long they're going to have to wait. Um, so yeah, I think I think certainly those those um, the the higher availability the the, the there is um, more established knowledge that that route exists and has been proven. But then having said that, Michael, you know, um, the thing that I found, one of the things recently that I found most difficult to to digest, I think, was um, the day after um, the Channel tragedy where we had six Afghan people that were killed, the day after 500 people crossed on the same route and they will have all they will have known all of them would have known about that tragedy happening so there is no doubt that people are d- undertaking that crossing in full knowledge and in full sight of the risks and and for me that's an abs- that absolutely if there was any doubt in my mind that would absolutely convince me that people can't be disincentivized from those crossings because if you're willing to continue doing that, even though you know that just the day before people have lost their lives on that route, uh, then the idea that, that you know, making the asylum system in the UK punishing and cruel will somehow dissuade people seems, you know, ridiculous in comparison to that. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it's it's probably true to say that there's been an increasing awareness of, of, of the, the viability of that route. But there is also a massive awareness of the risks attached to it. Let's talk about the asylum backlog. So in 2010, there were around 10,000 people waiting for their asylum claim to be heard. Now it's at around 175,000 people. The result, of course, is we're seeing lots and lots of people languishing in hotels. That's at an incredibly high cost to the taxpayer. And it's also obviously very disruptive to people's lives, people who want to move on, who want to find out what decision is going to be made. Um, What's going on there? Why is it taking um, the Home Office so long to process people's claims? I I honestly, I I don't know. I can give you my best guess. um, uh, And I I think it's it's a little bit of a combination of factors. I think that all of those factors lead back to abysmal leadership uh, of the Home Office um, from government. Um, I think the Home Office is um, dysfunctional and has been for a long time. I think there are significant structural problems there. I, I don't think that it is one government department. I think it, you know, it needs to be dismantled and it needs to be stripped back into relevant uh, d- different discrete discrete elements. It, it, it doesn't work. Um, and I also think that the Home Office is far too politicised. I have some level of sympathy with the civil servants in the Home Office because they really are damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. They either antagonise the Daily Mail or they antagonise 
the Guardian, and they it's not good for any of us to have a key government department being as politicised as the Home Office. There is no other government department that gets that level of media scrutiny. Um, so, it, so it, I, yeah, I think it, it needs breaking down into much more functional departments that can be better led, better managed. Um, I think that there is clearly a massive cultural problem in the Home Office um, that... Um, stems, I think, at a senior level from that uh, sometimes excruciating media scrutiny that they're on. Uh, I, 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 I think it immobilises some of them sometimes um, and it, it, it prevents them from really leaning into some of the braver solutions uh, that we need to find. But then I think, it, as I said, it stems back to terrifically bad government leadership I I think that when you look at for example Preeti Patel's um, nationality and borders bill uh, so this was one, one of her key policies in the nationality and borders bill was her differentiation policy this was something that said if you travelled to the UK regularly and claimed asylum then that was fine and you could go through the normal asylum system and you could get your status. However, if you travelled to the UK irregularly via a small boat or, or, or a lorry or a train, you could still claim asylum, but you weren't going to get the same status as someone that came regularly. You would only get temporary status, so uh, say three years or five years, and then you're going to have to reapply and you have to reapply periodically all the way through that cycle um and and when when that was being debated we were like this is crazy this is crazy because all you're going to do is confuse home office decision makers you're you're putting roadblocks in the way and critically you're slowing down the process because you're going to make people have to keep reapplying keep reapplying that's more decision making time that's more review time uh, and and this is not what you need to be doing right now they did it um and it did exactly as we said it would do. It slowed down the whole system for everyone because now you've got to divide the casework team in two and you've got to have one team on uh, irregular claims and one team on ir- on regular claims uh, with that constant review cycle. And around that time, decision-making, you could see it absolutely slow down at that time. Then what happened a few months ago, Jenrick just crossed that out he said no we're not going to do that anymore that policy i think was in place for about eight eight or nine months and now what they've got to do is go back over all of those cases that they gave different types of status to and take them through another process to regularize their status because they've gotten away with that policy they've they've done away with that policy that's one example of the terrible terrible leadership that you get within the home office really bad government making very very bad laws that the home office just they they can't implement they i mean michael some of it has been utter lunacy when you look at you step back it and you think how is that an efficient process this is madness and they but 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 they want the headline they they the government want to be able to say we're not granting refugee status to anyone coming in as well and be damned to the consequences, be damned to how much more that's going to cost us 
how much more that's going to disable the decision-making mechanism because we're not worried about any of those practical consequences. We just want that headline. At all and any cost, we want that headline. And we saw that with the barge again. It's exactly the same, that they keep repeating this unworkable, unrealistic policy headlines that delay decision-making, pull that home office decision-making team into all sorts of crazy directions. That then led to a mass exodus of staff. There's been so many experienced home office decision-makers that have left. Um, They've got, in fairness, they've recruited a lot of new decision-makers. You know, I think they're up to over 2,000 now, home office asylum decision-makers. But where are those staff coming from? They don't have that experience in decision-making. <clears throat> and I have to say that st- we're starting to see that. Uh, the, the, the system seems to be going from uh, inertia to utter chaos. We're seeing mass withdrawals of cases, uh, cases getting thrown out of the asylum system that shouldn't be thrown out, people getting refused status... I had a case this week, <clears throat> sorry, I had a case this week, um, this is typical of home office craziness, so it was a British national who was evacuated from Afghanistan with his Afghan wife and his two Afghan children on the evacuation, Operation Pitting, been in hotels for two years, Um and he's uh, his his he his wife has got ACRS status. He's a British national. Uh, the two children have just this week been refused status. They all came together on the evacuation. Um, what wife has ACRS status uh, as, as Sorry, what states ACRS ACRS Sorry, status it's, is it's the um, it's the Afghan citizens relocation scheme. Ah, okay, okay. So yep. she she's been accepted onto the scheme. She came over on the evacuation with their children. Um, so wife's got refugee status. Home office. The children are here in the UK, um, and home office have refused them status. So what are they going to do? Deport Why? the children? I mean, it doesn't make doesn't uh, make any sense. Exactly, it makes no sense. And we we're seeing now what's going to happen. We'll resolve it. But that family now have got to go, go and try and find an immigration representative. They've got to either decide whether or not the children have got to claim asylum in their own right or to appeal the refusal of status through ACRS. That's costing us as a country money because we're going to have to pay for that another round of decision-making processes. We're going to have to find the funding for his legal representation. Um, when it stands to reason, you know, you... You've, you're not an asylum decision maker, but you can see straight away the problem in that. We're seeing this sort of craziness so, every day that I'm picking up a case that's just utter sheer madness. And I I, I, I look at it and I think, OK, Lou, park, <laughs> park the le- lefty tofu humanitarian side of your head and just try and approach this as a taxpayer... They just, they just could not be a more inefficient system that we're running right now. And I, I, I think it's, as I said, I think it's that combination of terrible leadership, constructing a really toxic environment in the Home Office, awful policy, uh, policy guidance, leading to 
droves of experienced staff leaving and leaving us with a home office team of people that are either massively inexperienced or feeling comfortable in that more toxic environment, which naturally you will see reflecting in negative asylum determinations. We're seeing the Home Office, they've massively sped up decision-making, leading to lots of very bad decisions. And so now what we're going to see over the next few months, as well as um, scores of people booted out of the asylum support system and in homelessness, we're going to see lots and lots of fresh claims and further representations on asylum claims, um, which again is going to slow everything down, it's going to delay everything. But Sunak made his political pledge, and so he is gearing everyone around clearing that legacy backlog by was it December? He said he would he would start to to eat it down. So it's it, we're seeing political headlines and optics trying to drive policy, and that's where it's falling apart. And I think that's what's really snarled up decision making. And it's not there is no simple. That, yeah, put your finger on it, answer to that problem. It's a snarly, toxic problem that's been brewing for years in the Home Office and certainly from Theresa May all the way through uh, to, to Braverman now. And I suppose actually I, I realised while you were speaking there that I, <coughs> I think I've conflated lots of the various different immigration acts because there have been so many. So is it <laughs> is it the case... The, the, so the Nationality and Borders Act, did that do this thing whereby you separated people who arrived here regularly yeah. and people who arrived here irregularly? Yeah. And that meant that they had to reapply. If you were irregular, you had to reapply every three years. Yeah. And then that was replaced this year by the Illegal Migration Act, which means that if you arrive here irregularly, you're just, well, apparently inadmissible. So you're you're no longer even eligible to apply for asylum. Is that... Is that, am I, am I correct in terms of that's the difference? Exactly, exactly, you are, you are, that's correct. Although the, the uh, added, <laughs> the added madness, because there's always an added madness with any Tory legislation, uh, the added madness is um, the generic announced that until they're operationalising the Illegal Migration Act and ruling claims inadmissible that have travelled irregularly they are backdating anyone that travelled irregularly under NABA the Nationality and Borders Act the Patel Act they're backdating them and con- converting them to proper refugee status so in some ways it was a good thing for that weird funny cohort under Patel's legislation that wasn't getting refugee status because they travelled irregularly but then it's a bad thing for anyone travelling under the Illegal Migration Act because they'll get no status at all. And that, that is that chopping and changing all of the time. I mean, if you're a civil servant, if you're, God help us, if you were an asylum decision maker, it would be enough to push you to the brink of your sanity, I'm sure. I mean, do you know, it's, it's almost a silly question, but I mean, you obviously work in, in, in the policy space whereby you're, you're helping people with their claims. Do you know any sort of reasonable people who feel compassionate towards refugees and decided where they can really make the difference is becoming an asylum decision maker in the Home Office? No. I don't want you to name names because they get in trouble. But I mean, no. is that is that something that people in your space decide to do? No, 
No. There's a few that have gone the other way. There's a few that have started in the Home Office and moved into uh, the refugee voluntary sector. I, I No, I can't think of anyone that's moved from... I, I'm sure I've never met anyone that's moved from the voluntary sector values-based space into civil service. It was many, many years ago, Michael, I was working on a contract uh, in the voluntary sector that... Um, the home office moved in house and it I was nearly cheapied into the home office um but I um and I did think oh that could be fun for a few months I could just like approve everyone <laughs> and, uh, and end up getting sacked um but no I, I I didn't in the end no so I I no I don't I, I don't think I've ever met anyone that's traveled into the home office from the voluntary sector <laughs> I want to go back to something you said earlier in the interview when we were talking about small boat crossings. Um, and you said then that deterring migrants doesn't work. And you said that you were certain of this because the day after six migrants drowned in the channel, 500 more tried to make the crossing in full knowledge of the danger. And I think that's an important point. And I agree that deterrence will never stop all people coming to Britain to suggest it will is is false. There will always be there will always be people willing to take um, that risk, um, however risky we make it, however difficult we make it. But I don't think that actually implies that deterrence doesn't work. And I say that because I mean I imagine that if it wasn't so hard to get to the UK right now, we would have a lot more people applying for asylum. It seems to me that there's probably already a lot of people being deterred by how difficult it is to get here. And this has implications as well for the demand for, for safe routes. So I think sometimes progressives make out that safe routes will mean just the same number of people trying to get here, but instead of taking this risk crossing the channel, they'll come here via a, a much safer way. However, you know, I, I see why people make that argument, but I imagine that if you open safe routes, lots more people would give coming to Britain a go, right? Because the deterrent of the channel would have been to some degree taken away and then the total number of people trying to get to the UK would would increase um do you accept that possibly yes um but I I think that um that's where I think it's interesting to look at the Ukraine visa scheme which sounds weird but bear with me um we've never had Ukraine visa scheme was um really interesting We've never had an open visa scheme like that before in in, in modern modern asylum um, asylum processes in the UK, and if you look at those numbers of Ukraine visas, actually the number of people from Ukraine that have wanted to come to the UK has been relatively small, contextual to the number of people that have fled Ukraine. I think the total visa applications has been uh, just over two hundred thousand people, which granted sounds a lot. But, but, you know, with, in the context of the, the couple of million that have fled Ukraine, um, actually, that's a very small number of people. And that's an open visa scheme. So if you were to think about replicating that sort of open visa access, what Ukraine tells us is what we've always thought and the research has always told us to be true. The vast majority of people that are displaced want to stay as close to their home country as possible. They want to stay in countries that feel culturally similar to them, that speak similar languages, where they're in touching distance of home. 
Um, so, and that's certainly what we see reflected in Ukraine. The vast majority of Ukrainians have, have stayed as close to their home country as possible. That, I think, should give us confidence in, in being able to say we can allow more open visa schemes or, or certainly grant, grant more visa access. There is no doubt that the rise in irregular migration correlates to diminishing visa access. We've seen, you know, going on to the first point that I made earlier, there has been an overall increase in growth in asylum numbers over the last 18 years. And I think what's driving those numbers, what's driving those numbers is a massive decrease in established safe routes, resettlement, family reunion, and crucially, visa access to people. We've seen government over the last few years gradually scale back, scale back, scale back visa access. If, for example, if you take um, July this year, Home Office noted that there'd been a few applications for asylum from uh, Dominica, I think Honduras, uh, Namibia. What did they do? They updated the visa um, system and uh, withdrew visa access to those countries. And that's the pattern. Every time there's any discernible pattern of asylum applications from people on visitors' visas, for example, what will happen is in the next sort of month or two, government will update their visa policy and roll out visa restrictions to those countries. And we've seen that consistency consistently over the last few years. That coupled with increasing barriers to family reunification through applying for family reunification visas and the massive drop-off in refugee resettlement has that those are the drivers for irregular migration. I go back to look at Ukraine, look at that open visa channel, look at the context of the number of people that have applied for a visa to the UK comparative to the number of people that have fled Ukraine. And let's grow confidence in that and say, let's have visa reform. Let's have people be able to apply for a visa and travel safely to the UK. And that just, if you if you wanted to crush the people smuggling model, the way to do that is simply put them out of business. And with that, so from that perspective, using sort of going along with that argument, would, would you apply that just to war zones? So, so say, for example, you know, Ukraine, obviously there was a maximum number of people who could come here because Ukraine has a population of about 40 million. The men are mainly fighting. You know, there was going to be some maximum to the number. And then also because the rest of Europe was also offering that specific set of people asylum, that would make the numbers to some degree limited. You know, it could have been anywhere between 200,000 or a million or whatever, but mm. it, it, it was never going to be significantly more than, more than that. But if you applied what we've done with Ukraine to sort of everywhere, um, then I presume it would add up to, to you know, potentially millions of people. Um, so are you just saying we should do with Ukraine in more places that are currently subject to, to conflict? Yes, and I think I, I'm also saying that I think it, it does need global a global response. It needs it needs global cooperation, global partnerships. I don't think I don't think anyone would say you know the UK alone should um, have open visa access um, and that's all. Um, 
we need to be working with comparative countries. We need to be working pan-European with the states, with Canada. You know, Canada take a lot of refugees on refugee resettlement. Um, Let's look at some of those countries. Let's look at those established safe countries. And let's look at ways that we can collaborate and cooperate so that um, we're giving people reasonable safe access uh, to... to, um, to rebuild their lives in those countries. I think, obviously, this morning we've seen um, Labour announce, well, outline some some plans to... It sounds like they're, they're, that's sort of an idea they're flirting with, you know, working across Europe to look at how we can um, collaborate uh, to make sure that uh, everyone's taking sustainable numbers and, and we can support, I think... You know, broadly, that that's that's good in that, you know, there's a different type of dialogue there that isn't just enforcement clampdowns and crackdowns. Um, we need to do more of that um, and we need to do that globally. And I think UNHCR have been asking for that for some time. You know, they had their... Um, they, they pulled together a refugee compact uh, a few years ago that tried to do that. It tried to look at pledges for refugees from, from from those countries, those safe countries, where UNHCR could start to think about um, resettling refugees in a really planned and safe way in countries that had reception arrangements, um, good routes, uh, had established infrastructure around it. Um, unfortunately, what we saw is not enough countries pledging places to that. And always this narrative of why should we let's keep people out, close the borders. And for, for, for while you're doing that, that is the driver for irregular migration. If you're not going to commit to those planned safe pathways globally, you will always have high numbers of irregular migration. You know, so, I mean, the the annoying thing with the UNHCR programme was that our government is constantly bragging, oh, we took so many people via the UNHCR programme, but it was only like 20,000 people over five years, wasn't it? So it's sort of a, a pitiful number of people. Um, it was That was the Syrian scheme, and that was only just that one nationality. So it wasn't many, not many people over a number of time, and obviously Germany had, I think, over a million um, Syrians that yeah, they, they gave did. asylum to, and we're they bragging did. about yeah. this 20,000. Um, I should say, we're speaking on the 14th of September, so this is going to come out a little bit later, it might turn out that um, our listeners now know more details about Keir Starmer's asylum plan than oh, we do yeah. as we're talking here. But mm. I, hope, I did want to ask you about it though, because <laughs> yeah, let's let's hope the details good. But let's talk about the principle because, uh, as I understand mm. it, I mean Keir Starmer today is out mainly just talking about giving money to tackle the smugglers because that's you know what politicians like to say at the moment. But the the more substantive part of it seems to be um, that Labour would be willing to make a deal whereby they would have a returns agreement with European countries. So if someone were to cross the channel, they'd be able to send them straight back to France or send them back to, say, you know, the first country where they arrived, send them to Greece, something similar to what was the Dublin agreement when we were inside the EU. Um, but in exchange, we would be willing to resettle refugees who had um, arrived in other European countries and, you know, potentially applied at a British embassy or something like that. So we'd say, you know, these these 40,000 people who've crossed the channel to disincentivize that, we're going to deport them back to Europe. But in exchange, we will settle 40,000 refugees or that, that have arrived in Europe but haven't got made it to the UK yet. Now, I plucked those numbers out of the air. 
Um, the Conservatives are saying this would mean 120,000 um, refugees being accepted every year from elsewhere in Europe. Um, I'm not sure what you think about the numbers, but in terms of, of the principle, does that seem like a smart way to approach this? Broadly, broadly, I think it's a good thing. I think the devil will be in the detail of it. I always get nervous um, a, when we're talking about, you know, it's like a, 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 a game of sort of human top trumps. We'll swap you this refugee for that refugee. That always, I, 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 I always get nervous around that because I worry about, um, you know, that, that sort of shunting of humans around um, and their, their agency and empowerment and choice within that. Because ultimately, if a human doesn't have agency in that, all it does is continue to drive irregular migration because then you'll get third country re-migration and what's known as bounce backs uh, and things like that, which is not a terminology I love, but um, it's it's true to say if, if, if a human doesn't have choice and agency, then then they won't settle. What we need as a, as a world are, are settled humans that are able to build a home, get a job, learn a language, integrate um, and thrive. We want humans to thrive. Um, in order to do that, people have to feel like they have choice and agency. Uh, and I, I think that's right. If what Labour are going to propose is actually let's let, let's connect humans better. So, for example, um, we've got uh, mum and child in the UK and dad is in Germany struggling to get access or France struggling to get access. Absolutely, let's reunify that family uh, or vice versa. Uh, if that's what we're talking about, matching people to where they need to be, then I, I think that can only be a good thing. And we need to do that globally. European, Europe-wide is not enough. You know, we see all of the time um, the problems that people will experience in travelling, um, for example, um, uh, into Italy, into Greece, and the terrible, oh, terrible conditions people are making those journeys in, and the amount of fatalities at those borders. So we need we need those sorts of arrangements globally, um, so that people don't have to to risk their lives to get into Europe. Um, and, you know, there are huge problems around in and around Libya, with the Libyan Coast Guard, um, you know, potentially, you know, pushbacks happening, allegations of European and British funded pushbacks and border brutality. So that Labour plan, it, if it's just Europe, it, it won't address some of those things. So it's a good first step, um, but it will need to go much, much broader and much further than that. Um, and it's certainly refreshing to hear from Labour an understanding that there needs to be more of a person-centred approach here and, and embracing the reality that war and conflict and people that have been forced to flee will leave families scattered. That's that's what happens. It, leave, it separates families, it rips families apart. Efforts to reunify people in the right place together... It's refreshing to hear that from Labour. I, I've been worried about Labour over over the last year and, you know, very much parroting some of the Tory rhetoric on stop the boats, clamp down, crush people smuggling and very little on what 
what we know to be the drivers of irregular migration and, and, you know, visa reform, safe routes, family reunion, refugee resettlement and having a really good, healthy, functioning asylum system. So, yeah, refreshing to start to hear some of this from Labour. The devil will be in the detail, but but could be a good direction of travel. You know, I mean, I have to say about this, obviously, you know, our audience, I presume, will know a bit more than we do now. But what I was most surprised about is they announced this before the election, because to me, this seems like the most rational way to resolve the small boats problem, which is to say, we need an agreement with Europe whereby you can return people who cross via those dangerous, irregular routes. But obviously, in exchange, we're going to have to take our fair share of refugees who are arriving in, in Europe. That seems perfectly sensible to me. But I can't, you know, now they've half announced it and the Tories see this opportunity to say they're going to let in 120,000 refugees every year, which I'd be perfectly happy with. But, you know, some people in the country wouldn't be. I'm not sure this is going to survive until the election, frankly. That that is a risk. Um, And and I think that, um, you know, the the more that Labour occupy that that centre, the more it pushes the Tory government further right and it's difficult to conceive of a, of a Tory government being further right than than the one that we've got but every day at the moment it feels like there's a new anti-refugee policy uh, piece of legislation um, being being driven at people so I, I worry I worry that as you say Labour have announced this pre-election um and we know that we know that this debate is going to get even more cruel, even more hostile, um, as that journey to the election starts to heat up. And it, it, honestly, I, I I find it difficult to bear, Michael. I don't see, I can't fathom a way that this could become more cruel than it is at the moment. But I know it will become more cruel, uh, and I just worry about the humans that are caught up in that, and and the the cost to them um, and, and how many more people were going to lose um, in that run up to the election in this war, this sort of turf war between between Labour and, and the Conservatives. I know from a, you know, I, I, the way you're sort of explaining what you would want this policy to look like, it's about prioritising the agency of asylum seekers. And, you know, from my heart, that's, I agree, right? But if I was Keir Starmer, if I was the Labour Party, or any 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 politician in any sort of democratic Western nation, frankly, you have to be able to sell your vision of how asylum policy works as combining both sort of um, the agency of refugees and sort of compassion towards people in need and control. And sp- so I suppose, you know, in, in your vision of how this could work, where would that element of control come from? And presumably it would mean that some people who want to come to the UK can't. You know, they, they they might ideally want to come to the UK, but they don't have family here. So if the EU burden sharing scheme means that they get placed in Austria, um, so be it. I mean, how would you respond to that? I I think that um, I have, have to be a realist as much as I don't want to be a realist. We have to be realist about it. Um, and I think that inevitably... We, we have had such a hostile set of anti-migrant, anti-refugee border approaches for, for forever, you know, in the UK. You can't change that overnight. And it, it, it's not just the UK. It's, it's all over the globe. 
we alone cannot change that and we even together can't change that overnight what we need to do is start a journey on a on a different approach a different set of attitudes here one that embraces that people move one that embraces that that's okay and there's nothing to fear from that um because ultimately uh a um most people just want to rebuild their lives and get on and have a fair crack and and that's good and and everyone's entitled to that Uh, and b most people want to do that in their home or as close to their home as possible Uh, and the few that want to make a new home somewhere totally different then then fine but of course there has to be a stage journey in getting us there and it may be for example that we're prioritizing uh, certain groups for example family reunification if you know i think that that's a massive priority and if if people have family in the uk close family in the uk we should be prioritizing them to reunify with their family because that is one of the massive drivers of irregular migration it's people with family here um so you know you could quickly pick that off as a priority you could also prioritize people from key countries um with close links to the uk and uh, with uh, significant protection concerns, you know, the most obvious at the moment being Afghanistan uh, and the people that um, uh, were were very close to the UK during um, uh, the occupation of Afghanistan. Um, You could also pick, for example, Sudan. You know, Sudan is a a former British colony. Um, We inflicted a lot of damage on Sudan um, and we've done nothing to help people. It's interesting because you're starting to see uh, Sudanese grow as a nationality in small boats, which was inevitable um, from the start of the of the conflict there, and 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 the lack of response from the UK government in offering any form of safety to people fleeing Sudan. So, so I, I think you could quite easily start to take a, a staggered or staged approach to that journey of more of a more equal and fair system. I'm also incredibly mindful, though, that um, our borders are uh, our borders are resultant, I think, and our approach to border management is resultant from a lot of our colonial history, and 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 concepts of 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 racism. Um, you know, if you look at um, forgetting the Refugee Convention for a moment, and obviously the Refugee Convention is clear around definition of a refugee you know well-founded fear of persecution people feel fleeing war and torture but obviously there are people that are migrating to the UK that are fleeing poverty uh, that may be fleeing climate change um, and and the poverty driven by climate change those are groups that um, we should still be offering uh, routes to question then becomes how you do that um, because of the relationship with UK history around you know, colonialism uh, and the the ongoing pervasive impact on some countries basically we have left some countries in a deeply difficult situation grappling with vast poverty there is an argument to say we have a role there in addressing some of that. So, so I think I think going back to your point is, of course, we need to be reasonable. Of course, we need to be sensible. We need to work globally, and we need to take a staged approach to how we start to 
address some of those failings in our UK border and migration strategy. Well, we haven't really got a UK border and migration strategy at the moment, have we? I mean, so one argument um, left-wing people often make, you know, sometimes on the mainstream media, but I mean, I think it's it's almost a... It's, it's taken as a given sometimes in sort of left-wing discourse is that the 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 distinction between an asylum seeker and an economic migrant is a phony one and i can't i get that on a moral level how it is a phony one because i i think you know poverty can be just as 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 as, as appalling as war or, or persecution political persecution on a practical level it does the distinction does make a massive difference because if you were to say we have an obligation to give a safe home to everyone who is looking to flee poverty, that would be a lot of people. Because, you know, the argument you made about sort of when, when people flee war, they tend to want to stay fairly close, somewhere culturally similar. I think when it comes to economic migration, people do want to go to places where you've got decent high wages, right? That's why lots of people um, from sub-Saharan Africa want to travel to Europe. Now, I totally understand why they want to do that. I'd probably want to do the same. But if you say that you need to treat economic migrants in the same way that asylum seekers are treated, then that does... You know, that has some real practical implications, let's say. It does. Um, yeah, it does. And I, I, I absolutely think that the drivers are different. The journeys are different. The demographics are different, absolutely. Um, and I think the the solutions are probably different as well. To some extent, um, there are there are alternative ways that we can help it's interesting isn't it because i think i think border border and migration is so inextricably linked to um capitalism to colonial legacy and racism um and to a certain extent classism as well and and that interplay between race opportunity and poverty um if if you just start to strip that back and look at some of those drivers of migration and poverty being one of them um i i think there's a there's a role for economic migration and i think we need to be honest about that i think we need economic migrants in the uk i think one of the problems that we're experiencing is we don't have enough uh, mass exodus of of migrant staff after after Brexit. Um, so I think we need to change the narrative and say absolutely we need migrants in the UK to um, to, to, to work. Uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and we also need to be looking at the global factors surrounding certain key regions and certain key countries being in grinding poverty. No one should have to live in that that level of grinding poverty. And again, I, I'm being realistic, that's not something the UK can solve alone, but it is something that we can start to address globally. Where I think we're going wrong is we're, we're doing neither one of those things. We're not meaningfully helping globally. I mean, you look at our international aid budget, it's been spent on barges, barracks and hotels in the UK right now. Um, so, you know, we're not we're not investing in those the, the, the global poverty problem in the way that we should be. We're certainly not collaborating enough around it. 
and we're saying no you can't come here um no we we, we don't we don't want you here and 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 you're gonna have to you know sort yourself out in a small boat we're doing neither of those things very well and the solution is a combination of both of those things You started this conversation by sort of saying, you know, your work is very much sort of practical, giving people practical support or giving charities practical support who give people practical support. I suppose I'd quite like to end this conversation by thinking about the the practical experience of asylum seekers on the front line of this crisis in the UK. So the people who are staying in hotels who are waiting two or three years to have their asylum claim heard. Now, you know, like you, I often go on sort of right wing media and have conversations about this on on, on, on places such as sort of GB News or Talk TV. And what's always put to you there is that these are people who are living in five-star hotels, they're having the time of their life. Um, we are treating them with sort of undue generosity that they're incredibly unappreciative of. Um, and what a what an easy ride we're giving all of these people. Um, they'll say that, you know, they're economic migrants because they could have stayed in France, but separate from that because that's I mean I think it's already been apparent in our conversation that's a ridiculous point I suppose I want you to talk about what you know about the experience of asylum seekers who are you know the human side of that backlog thank you yeah I think I find that the hardest thing it's um the people that I work with the people that are in our asylum system are the kindest, the bravest, and the most resilient people I've ever worked with. Um, I, there's been, you know, some 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 tricky tricky times. Um, you know, working with refugees and, and and asylum seekers, and there are some cohorts of refugees that are trickier to work with. Maybe have higher expectations of life in the UK. Um, but certainly uh, those in the asylum system, I find, um, in my experience, um, to be the most humble, most grateful and kindest people. Um, they're generally the people that have been ter- terribly failed by every state um, and just want to stop having to move, to lay roots, to support a family and to start working. And they're hustlers, the vast majority of them. They're just desperate to get the right to work so that they can crack on. And they will say, literally, we'll do anything, we'll do anything. I met a guy a little while ago uh, who's been waiting for seven years, I think. Um, And he was volunteering at two refugee charities um, because uh, neither refugee charity allowed full-time volunteering, which is quite common because, you know, it can be quite exploitative if you allow full-time volunteering. And neither of those charities allowed full-time volunteering. So he volunteered two and a half days in each charity, uh, taking him up to five days a week because um, he just, he said... I said to him, you know, why are you volunteering five days a week? And he said, I just, I can't cope with not working. I can't cope with getting up in the morning and, and not having a purpose to my day, not, not, not 
you know, getting ready for work and leaving and, and going and, and doing a day's work and then coming home. Um, and so he'd organise, he, he, for him, it was so important to his routine, to his structure, to his mental health and his well-being to have that purpose to his life, that purpose to his day. And that's something you see a lot from people. They had, they did not expect, they do not expect asylum support. They do not expect hotel accommodation. What they expect and what they don't get is a, is a system that lets them work while those decisions are being made and a speedy decision. That, that's their expectation. Um, they have no, most of them have no concept of welfare benefits. Culturally, it's very different in the UK to, to, to their home culture. They don't even expect the NHS. Um, I, remember having, I remember having a very heated discussion with a, with a, a, a Syrian refugee uh, who was in the asylum system who was getting a bit grumpy about the fact that his uh, GP uh, was putting him through a referral to the hospital and um, he hadn't had the referral yet. Um, because his point of reference was the private healthcare system. You know, most countries that, that, that refugees come from have a private healthcare system. And, and I was explaining to him that, you know, the NHS was really busy and he just, you know, needed to uh, bear with and it would happen. And he was like, well, you know, how much, how much am I going to pay for this? And I haven't even got my referral. And I was like, no, lovely, you're not. You, you know, you're not, you're not getting... And the fact that he didn't have to pay was a complete new new concept for him. And he was just like, what? You mean I'm not going to have to pay? I, I don't think I've met anyone in the asylum system. I'd, I've never met anyone in the asylum system, in all the people that I've met, that thought, I'm going to come to the UK and take it easy and chill out in a hotel and um, live up the rich life on £9.60 a week. That's the reality. If these people were economic migrants... My God, they'd be rubbish economic migrants, wouldn't they? Living on £9.60 a week for years on end. And, and, and Michael, it is years. It is years that people wait fighting for status. Another fellow that I met a little while ago uh, has waited 16 years fighting for status. Um, he was a police officer in his home country and was uh, forced to flee uh, because it was a difficult situation. And, and um, he became... Uh, sort of persona non grata with his state uh, and they came after him and he's been waiting 16 years and in that time um, he's been bounced in and bounced out of the asylum system refused status open fresh claims um, and 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 that 16 years of his life just 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 gone by the time he gets status he'll probably be at retirement age just just wasted just gone so you know when you, when you strip it back when you try to strip those arguments back and you say well economic migrant well they're not allowed to work and they're living on nine pounds sixty a week um, or they're in five star hotels let me tell you they are not five star hotels it, on, on occasion the home office have managed to find cheap deals on hotels that may be. Um, uh, present as being higher status or richer or, 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 or more expensive hotels but they don't stay like that uh, the private accommodation provider that's contracted in those areas will quite quickly move into that hotel strip out all of those that nice furniture and those nice beds 
uh, whack bunk beds in them. Uh, we're seeing the Home Office's maximisation policy at the moment, which is where they are stacking and racking people into hotel rooms. Uh, there's been hotels where they've quite nastily turned off TVs, unplugged even communal TVs because, you know, assigned seekers aren't allowed to watch TV. No, they're not allowed to work. They're not allowed to watch TV. What do you want them to do all day, every day with their lives? Stuck in a really rural, remote location where there's no infrastructure, there's no language resources, there's no cultural resources for them. And when you, in those sorts of environments we are as a state incubating a mental health crisis in those environments the amount speaking to sept colleagues the amount of suicidal ideation that we're responding to in the asylum system is become it it was weekly it came daily it's now almost becoming hourly that we're responding to someone who's at risk of suicide um asylum accommodation providers in hotels are constantly putting people on suicide watch um, and in immigration detention. Because our government has constructed an environment of such hatefulness and hopelessness around those humans, and it, that's the thing that breaks my heart, because they you'll still walk into those hotels and they will still smile at you, welcome you, uh, sit down and ask you how you are. They'll ask me how I am. How's my week been? Um, and there's still such kindness and hopefulness with some of them. And they try and take care of each other. We saw that with the Bibby Stockholm. There was a letter that the the people that was put on the barge for that short period wrote a letter to, to Suella Braveman um, saying that, that one one of them one of their members wanted to to kill themselves during that that stay on the barge and they intervened to to try and take care of him um so you you see in the mix of such hopelessness you you see such kindness from people and a and a real want to a real just determination to get through this to grip their teeth and get through this what i can't bear is this harm is preventable this harm that we're inflicting is a choice that our government is making, a choice despite the huge cost, despite the huge damage, they're still continuing to choose this course of action. When our numbers at the moment are easily absorbable, they're very modest, and we could do simple things to just get people, get people going and give them some hope, and we're choosing not to do those things. And we're choosing to invest money in more hatefulness and more hostility. And I wish, my my dearest wish, is I could take those people in power and just sit them with those humans that they're inflicting this damage on and open their eyes to it properly. And to try and explain the, you know, the two questions that I get asked daily, when will I get my status and why won't they let me work? I would love to take Rishi Sunak and Braverman and Jenrick and just say, answer that question to those humans, explain yourself, explain why you're pushing them and punishing them through this process. But then I think I'm not sure I would want to inflict them on those wonderful humans. So, yeah. Yes, I was, I was about to, um, 
I was almost going to end on a positive note because even though I don't have that much faith in Keir Starmer or the Labour Party to be brave, I do think you look at the current situation as it is and think this isn't benefiting anyone, whatever your politics. The only reason you could have constructed a situation this chaotic is if you wanted chaos as an end in itself because you want immigration to be an issue that you think you can sort of exploit politically. And I do think there is an element of that, that this backlog, these hotels, they've made refugee policy so visibly chaotic because they hope that while the public will blame them to some degree, more or key demographics within the public will think, well... I mean, it would only be worse with Labour, wouldn't it, if we're thinking about immigration? Um, and, and so that gives me hope that if Labour get into power, it will actually be in their interest to make this at least a little bit less chaotic because they don't want immigration to be on the, the front of the headlines every day. Then, though, I suddenly remembered that it was a Labour government that banned asylum seekers from working, wasn't it? So they are, to some degree, the, the creators of this chaos. Labour introduced the points-based... Points-based immigration... Uh, that's become a real t- t- that became a real Tory mantra in the in the last sort of election, didn't it? Um, Labour introduced points based immigration. Labour built three new immigration detention centres. Labour introduced the NAS system that's completely crumbled, national asylum support system, uh, and its perniciously low uh, asylum support rates within that to a certain extent, introduced the creeping privatisation of um, the asylum support system and private accommodation providers. Years ago, it used to be uh, asylum accommodation would be provided through local authorities. Um, And I think it was just at the cusp of the last Labour government and the coalition government that that changed into private providers. And I do think private accommodation providers in the asylum system are a root cause of a lot of our problems. Um, The... the just just disgusting, disgusting amounts of money that they're taking out of the system uh, and treating people quite badly for it. Um, so, yeah, Labour, Labour, you know, Labour have got a, a, a bad track record. And I think that a lot of people, a lot of people who work with refugees and asylum seekers are nervous about Labour. Uh, I think it's, it's a weird combination, isn't it? Because... We know, look, you know, would would I would I trade Yvette Cooper for Suella Braverman? Of course. I mean, just it's a no-brainer. And everyone in the refugee and asylum sector would. Um, of course we would. Of course, a million percent, you know, absolutely. Uh, are we managing our expectations um, that what we might get with Labour is less objective cruelty... Um, but still not taking us where we need to be in terms of our dialogue around uh, people moving, um, the narrative around refugees and asylum. Of course, there is that tension. We will get more more effective policies with Labour. Um, hopefully, uh, quicker quicker processes, less damaging processes. But I think Labour does have a problem if it wins the election. And I think that's because it it has participated in the stop the boats narrative. And the reality is, and you say the quiet bit out loud, Michael, the boats may never stop. And if they don't, are Labour going to do what we've seen the, the Tories do? Looking from Theresa May to Suella Braveman... 
you know, there has been on that as bad. I mean, Theresa May was awful. I thought it was never going to be- get worse than Theresa May. <laughs> then Priya Patel comes in and then enter Braverman. And it's been, we've started at go home vans and, and racially profiled stop searches at London tube stations under Theresa May. And now we're at barges and prison hulks. <laughs> And Rwanda, human trading plans. I mean, it's got so much worse. Is that same trajectory going to happen with Labour? Are they going to get increasingly extreme as irregular migration doesn't stop? Because if you want irregular migration to stop or start to slow down, you are going to have to be very bold, very ballsy in how you approach that. And I don't think we'll get that from Labour I think we'll get more, as I said, more effective policies, um, but still high levels of irregular migration. And then I wonder if they're going to creep to more extreme measures um, because they've participated in that narrative of stop the boats. Lou, that was so interesting. Thank you so much for the, the amount of time you give me as well. I really do appreciate that. It's so nice to talk for more than 10 minutes for once. It is. Sorry, I've, 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 I've gone off on one, I think, Michael. Sorry. <laughs> You've been listening to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker. To support us on Patreon, please go to patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. Crash Course is produced and edited by Lewis Bassett and Patrick Herdman. Patrick Herdman does the sound design.